0: No songs. We're going to be sad today. No, I you have to do you, you can't you can't get people used to doing the same thing every every week. It gets monotonous after a while. So, we are in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And we are At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, let's just read the passage, and then we're going to look at it more carefully. Um, Matthew 5, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. A state of the state address is given by a governor Uh, to outline the priorities and the policies and goals for the next legislative session. I don't know how many of you uh, pay attention to to it or not, but uh, usually there is also a State of the Union Address. Some of you may watch that. And um, the State of the Union Address is, of course, given by the President of the United States to recommend to the Congress... such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient." That is the way it's supposed to be. He outlines his legislative agenda and priorities for the nation for the upcoming uh, year. Here we have the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is giving his State of the Kingdom address It is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, it is a comprehensive manifesto of a new kingdom and the agenda and priorities of his kingdom. In it, he outlines uh, the expected lifestyle of those who are in the kingdom, those who are uh, subjects or citizens of the kingdom. And he also outlines the, um, uh, well, as I said, the agenda and priorities. Uh, He calls his citizens here in this um, sermon to a radical change of thinking, a change of living, and a change of character. He challenges the religious status quo and calls not for superficial external adherence to man's set of rules, but inward transformation that can only be brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. I don't know if you remember when Moses gave the law to the children of Israel in the desert wilderness and uh, he enumerated all of the the laws, and they said, all this we will do, you know? And we can read this passage and say the same thing, all this we will do. What the the children of Israel should have said, there's no way on earth we can do this. We need your help. And when we look at what Jesus is um, giving for us here in the Sermon on the Mount and asking us to do, Humanly speaking, it is absolutely impossible. And yet, he is calling us as believers to live this way, and the only way possible for us to to live this way is for us to say the opposite of what the Jews said in the wilderness and saying, Lord, I cannot do this in my strength, in my own strength. I just don't have it within me to, to live this way, to act this way, to think this way. I need your help. I need you to uh, live and work through me. And so the, the, the call here is for all of his citizens to be Christ-like. That's the goal. That's the, the end. That's the end result that he is looking for. And we begin this morning with what has often been called the greatest sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount is really not a message of salvation. This is not how you become a Christian. This is not how you get saved. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day for us. And if we believe on him, we are saved. We are transformed instantly from children of darkness to children of light and that is the gospel message. This is not. This is actually uh, a message that is meant for people who are believers and how they can be transformed. So, if you notice in the first verse, he went up on one of the hills. It's likely a hill near Galilee. It says a mountain in the scripture, um, and they are mountains, tall hills, but they're not, you know, Mount Everest. It's a, it's a hill outside of. Uh, or near the the, uh, Sea of Galilee. And His disciples are are not just the 12. Sometimes we think, oh, the disciples came to Him and listened. But if you look to the end of the sermon, you'll actually see in chapter 7, verse 28, that the people were astonished at His teaching. So those who gathered to hear this were not just His disciples, but were all those who at this time were following Him. The message contains a description of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king. And this is the manifesto, or as some have said, the constitution of the kingdom. And it describes the lifestyle and the principle um, of the new kingdom, one that is unlike any kingdom that has ever been on earth. And um, the teaching is intended for all people. Uh, past those who lived at the time, present it, it's for us and future those who will live uh, in the millennial uh, period as well. Really, it's meant for all people who acknowledge Jesus Christ as King, those who can say He is Lord. And so I ask you this morning: Can you? Do you believe and do you say Jesus is Lord? And if he is, this message is for you. The Sermon on the Mount is for you. It's like no other teaching. It is revolutionary in every way, and it challenges us, it challenges me to the core. The the teaching is not hard to do. It's impossible to do apart from the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. It's not something we can do in our own strength. So... The first 12 verses of the sermon are called the Beatitudes, and then we'll have the similitudes, and then we'll have other teaching uh, as we go through the sermon. It goes through chapter 5, 6, and 7, but this morning we're going to look at just three of the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 6. So let's start, um, I'm sorry, 4. (laughs) Four of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Many of you know that the word blessed here is the word that means happy. How happy are the poor in spirit. The next verse says, how happy are those who mourn. How happy are the meek. And some say that the meaning is bigger than just being filled with joy, but it it includes a richness of life. It's about a way of living that is truly satisfying. And and the, the verses or the statements seem paradoxical, don't they? How happy are the sad. It seems like a paradox here. How happy are the poor in spirit. And you say, well, how can one be happy if they're mourning? And Jesus is teaching a radically different lifestyle and a revolutionary way of thinking. And it's unlike anything that the world teaches. It describes an ideal citizen of his kingdom. And so as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have to constantly reject uh, any teaching that is contrary to what Jesus taught. And this is our challenge today um, and every day, to reject the teaching that we're hearing in the world and embrace what Jesus has taught here. Our, our lives need to be different uh, than the way we live and the way we think. So the first beatitude, how happy are the poor in spirit? We all know that there are some people who are always sad, always down in the dumps, always depressed, always grumpy, always complaining. And I don't think Jesus is referring to those long-faced Christians here in this passage who mope around in life as if they drink from a pickle jar. That's not what Jesus is referring to when he says, poor in spirit, I believe that one who is poor in spirit is a person who actually has a very healthy view of himself and of those around him. Uh, He may be naturally optimistic and positive, but he's poor in spirit in this sense that he readily admits his own helplessness and weakness and he freely admits he needs God's strength and power to live the life that God intends uh, for him to live. And the Apostle Paul, to me, was certainly no grumpy guy. And uh, he was one who soared with words like this, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ,' who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he goes on to enumerate the blessings. And you go, the happiness, the happiness, the happiness of a, of a believer who is in Christ. So clearly he was a man who had a very positive outlook in his spiritual life. And yet it was the same apostle who said, uh, that, who had a healthy distrust of himself and the old nature that still lives within him. And he was poor in spirit. And we should be aware, self-aware enough to say this with him, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And so you have a, um, a joy of your position in Christ and the blessings that God has poured out upon you. That's a very healthy outlook in the Christian life. And yet, at the same time, you realize the the spiritual poverty that we have within ourselves, in and of ourselves. And uh, we recognize that very, very clearly. One who is poor in spirit freely acknowledges a lack of strength and power to live the life Jesus lays out for us. But he's quick to embrace the verse that says, God is my strength and power and he makes my way perfect. One who is poor in spirit freely acknowledges a lack of wisdom to understand all that God is doing in our lives, but he quickly remembers, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. One who is poor in spirit freely acknowledges a lack of personal or even natural ability. And yet he remembers that God's calling is his enabling. We remember Moses, who by his own admission was not eloquent, he was slow of speech, but the Lord said to him, "'Who has made man's mouth? "'Have not I the Lord?' Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. It was Dwight Moody who said of Moses that Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was a nobody. And finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. And so it's a healthy view of ourselves before God, um, being poor in spirit. We remember Jeremiah. He was poor in spirit as a young man, Verse uh, Jeremiah 1, 4-8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And so you see Jeremiah saying, Lord, I don't have a natural ability. I'm too young. I'm too this. I'm too the other. This poverty of spirit, this poor, I'm poor in spirit. And the Lord says, my Adequacy trumps your inadequacy, okay? And so the Lord raises him up. We read biographies of men and women God has used, and there's a common theme among them all. They all realize their own inadequacies, and they also realize the omnipotence of God. We remember the striking contrast Jesus gave us in the Scripture between a Pharisee and a tax collector. Uh, In Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his press, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this kind of humility expressed by the tax collector is what it means to be poor in spirit. Happiness that the Lord is promising here in this passage, happiness flows to the man or to the woman who is poor in spirit, because they understand that if they got what they deserved, they would be in hell, and they're not. And at the point, at, at a point in their life, they came broken and contrite to the Lord and received His salvation, and. Um, God has uh, sent His Spirit to live within them and they have true happiness now because they have been broken. They are broken in spirit, poor in spirit, and they rely on the Lord and the Lord is the one who then uses them. The Bible says the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Now it's also important to realize that being poor in spirit is not about Self-preoccupation. Always thinking about oneself. Um, Gene Gibson used to describe it this way. A person who is always dwelling on their navel. And the idea, or lint in their navel, I think is the way he said it. And they're always picking themselves apart and their heads bowed down. Those who are poor in spirit have a healthy and realistic view of themselves that they are nothing apart from Christ. That's how we should think. We should regard one another as better than ourselves, more important than ourselves, and we should put the needs of others ahead of ourselves, our own needs. Being being poor in spirit is to clearly recognize that I am so unlike Christ, and yet it is to have that healthy desire to be like Christ And allow Him to transform me into the same image from glory to glory. What is promised to those who are poor in spirit? Jesus promises them here the kingdom. He also says in Luke 12, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's safe to say that those who come to the Lord with a broken heart... Never leave his presence with a broken heart. The scripture says he will exalt you. The Bible says he will revive you. The Bible says he draws near and saves you. And the future is bright for the Lord promises that you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Some of you might be waiting for the death of a loved one because you have an inheritance from that loved one. Nothing compares to this. This is an inheritance, the kingdom of heaven that belongs to those who um, are poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are in the process of being refined as gold. And I don't know if you've ever seen gold being refined, but it goes through a very hot, hot, hot process to uh, burn away all impurities. But in order to be refined, we also need to um, be refined. And that involves trials. That involves pain. The testing and the fire that is perfectly measured out by the Lord for each one of us. And whether you are in the fire um, or in the flood, whether you are walking through a dry and barren place, and you long for the trial to be removed. Know this that even if the Lord does not take it away, He will see you through it. And so we're going to pause here for a moment. We're going to hear a, a song by uh, a trio called the Booth Brothers who sing uh, a song called Through, and then we'll move on to the next Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, the the second um, of the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. John MacArthur asks the question, What could be more self-contradictory than the idea that the sad are happy? That the path to happiness is sadness. That the way to rejoicing is in mourning. And yet, what is the alternative? We are taught from our youth that money brings happiness. That fame brings joy. That pleasure is satisfying. And that the accumulation of things brings contentment. But there was a man named Solomon who was the wisest man who ever lived, certainly in the Old Testament, and he had it all. And one would think that with everything he had, he would have been the happiest man on earth, the most satisfied person who ever lived. To quote MacArthur again, yet that is exactly the philosophy of the world. "'Things satisfy. Acquiring brings happiness. Achieving things brings meaning. Doing things brings satisfaction. Solomon, the wisest and most magnificent of ancient kings, tried the world's way to happiness for many years. He had the royal blood of his father David coursing through his veins. He had vast amounts of gold and jewels and made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem.' He had fleets of ships and stables filled with thousands of the finest horses. He had hundreds of wives gathered from the most beautiful women of many lands. He ate the most sumptuous of foods on the finest of tableware in the most elegant of palaces with the most distinguished people. He was acclaimed throughout the world for his wisdom, power, and wealth. Solomon would have been immeasurably happy. He should have been immeasurably happy. Yet that king so great and blessed by earthly standards concluded that his life was purposeless and empty. And the theme of Ecclesiastes, Solomon's personal testimony on the human situation, is vanity of vanities, emptiness of emptiness. All is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. And so you have to to ask yourself, why would mourning bring about happiness? The citizen of the kingdom of heaven does grieve, but what is he grieving over? The citizen of the kingdom of heaven grieves over the impact that sin has in his own life and that sin has in the world. He laments the fact that our politics, our business, our personal dealings are filled with corruption and that righteousness does not reign on the earth. In contrast to the false idea of karma, there is a cynical saying that is more often true, that no good deed goes unpunished. And I don't know if you've ever done a good deed for somebody. You've done something kind and generous and helpful, and they turn around and they trample all over you. No good deed goes unpunished. That's the meaning of it. And this terrible injustice causes the citizens of the kingdom to sorrow, as David did when he said, they reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. The citizen of the kingdom mourns over a world that calls evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the world that we live in, and it causes sorrow and mourning. Jeremiah is described as the weeping prophet. He sorrowed constantly in his life for the sins of his people and the consequences of those sins. Job mourned over the loss of all things. Paul grieved over the fact that no one had stood with him and that every one of his friends had abandoned him at his first trial. And he saw how fickle his friends really were. Yet through it all, Jeremiah was told by the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord. There is hope in your future, says the Lord. And what about Job? Well, the Bible says you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seeing the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And although Paul sorrowed because, of, because he was abandoned by everyone, he was comforted by this. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The pain, the grief, the sorrow the agony, they are all so real in life and they're felt so deeply. We're not happy for the sorrow, but we can be happy for what God will do in response to the mourning that we suffer. David said, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And I will say this, that God may not necessarily remove every single affliction from us. There are believers who have died suffering. God will not necessarily remove the sorrow, but he will take us safely through to the other side. And sometimes we lose that perspective, that we think this life is all there is. This is just the dress rehearsal, folks. Real life is coming, and it lasts for eternity. For it is in our trials that we draw near to God in a way that we would not necessarily otherwise draw near to Him. And we find that God draws near to us. God is so much more interested in developing our character so that we might become more like His Son. Because as someone once said, God wants to populate heaven with people just like his son, Jesus. And so he allows us to go through sorrow, to change who we are. Because without that, well, (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm not very much like Christ. So my brothers and sisters, this is the work that he is accomplishing in us during our trials. And James says this, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. At times, if you're honest, you may feel completely overwhelmed by your trials. And yet he promises that he will not give you more than you can bear. And in the midst of your mourning, You will find that the comfort that only God can provide will will, will reach the deepest recesses of your soul, your heart, your mind. And only God can really satisfy the aching heart, the bruised body, broken mind. (laughs) Beautiful verse that describes this for me is that he captures our tears in his bottle. I wipe them away. He catches them, and he stores them in his bottle. It shows you the intimacy and the tenderness of the Lord when he he describes things like that, that, that that is how intimate he is with us, how tender he is towards us, that he cares. We are comforted by God, for he is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And in case you didn't hear that word, comfort, 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 it's there. That's what he's doing. Last time I preached here, about a month ago, uh, the night before, the weekend, uh, that that weekend, the night before, uh, we had had some very terrible guests who had created quite a stir in our house And I finally had to evict them from the premises. And it's never a fun thing to do, especially when you've got 15 people you have to kick out at 11 o'clock at night. And um, they were unhappy, to say the least. And they circled around me, literally. And I felt like I was a, a lamb in the midst of a circle of wolves, and they were about ready to consume me. Thankfully, not one of them physically attacked me But they certainly yelled and cussed in my face and said all manner of vulgar and threatening things to me um, at that time. Some of them, on their way out, went through the house causing uh, malicious, stupid damage to different parts of the house. And finally they left, and I was left to clean up the mess. And I was up all through the night, cleaning. Cleaning. Um, until I came here to preach that morning and it was a wearisome tiring day and I was feeling quite sorry for myself I was kind of shaken by the whole ordeal and I remember coming in through the front door and I was met I think by Matt and um, brother um, Eddie and Just to get it off my chest, I kind of relived what had happened the night before, hoping to to gain some pity from these brothers who were listening to my story of woe. And uh, Eddie listened and he said, you know, he said something similar to that happened to a brother um, in Lebanon. And um, he said he told the story to another brother and the brother asked him, "Um, did they beat you? And the man said, no. And uh, he said, did they strip you of your clothes and spit on your face and, and, and pluck the beard out of your face? And the man said, no. He said, did they hang you to a cross? And the man <laughs> said, no. And he said, well, I guess you made out okay then, didn't you? And Eddie's story struck home to me to make me realize once again that nothing I suffer compares to the sufferings of Christ who endured all of that for me. And if I am called to suffer pain or loss or abuse or harm for the sake of Christ, I need to have the same attitude as Paul. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The mourning that we experience in life is temporary. Perhaps the Lord will be gracious and deliver us from it in this life. But I know and I am assured by his word of this fact that there is coming a day when we will be delivered, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. We read this in Revelation 21. How happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Bank on it. It's a promise from God. I'm going to ask Sharon and David if they'll come up and and we can sing together that song. It's not in our chorus book, so we'll look at the words on the screen. What a day that will be. I'm looking forward to that day. <laughs> I hope you are too. The third beatitude is verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's a similar verse found in Psalm 37:11 it says, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Meek being gentle Humble, submissive, patient, forbearing, kind. All of these words are associated with meekness. And I want to add one to that, being a servant. That's what it, it really a servant is somebody who meekly does the will of someone else. The opposite of meek um, An American businessman. Simple as that. Aggressive, assertive, prideful, domineering, impatient, arrogant, harsh. Oftentimes people think of meekness as being weakness. And it is clearly not. Um, A person who is meek is not weak. And I think about Moses... He was not weak. He stood before Pharaoh and said, let, God said, let my people go. That's not meekness. That's boldness. But he was meek. He was not weak. The Bible describes him this way. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Timothy was one who appears to be timid in Scripture, and yet... He was not weak either. He went to uh, churches and had to solve problems and and make changes within churches and and, uh, raise up those who would be elders to serve. Jesus Christ, no one can ever accuse him of being weak, yet he is described as meek and lowly. He was God Almighty, and yet... He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and there he did not open his mouth. And if we are going to be like Jesus Christ, and that's the whole point of the Beatitudes, uh, if we are going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, we must embrace this character uh, trait of his meekness. One who is meek is not weak. In fact, um, we may be by nature more like a wild stallion. That might be who we are naturally. But a wild stallion can be broken, and a wild stallion can be ridden by, and be, become submissive to a rider. And someone has described meekness as power under control. And I like that power under control. And we, like that stallion, need to be broken by our master and be tamed by him. And it does not mean that we cannot be fierce in defending the Bible or standing up for those who are afflicted. And we may be a champion of righteousness. And that is still meekness because the Bible describes the meek as those who are upholding his justice. But when facing a personal attack, it's a little different. One who is meek does not seek revenge, retaliation, or vengeance. That's meekness. When, you have, when, so, when somebody has attacked you personally, and yet you don't try to defend yourself, and you don't try to uh, retaliate, that is meekness. Peter asked the question, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. An unbroken stallion is useless. Uncontrolled wind, as we saw just last week with uh, Hurricane Dorian, is destructive. Raging water is dangerous. But under control Under submission, these three are valuable and beneficial. An uncontrolled, raging, unbroken person cannot produce spiritual blessing. But one who is meek can. And the work of God is to bring us into conformity to His image, to be like Christ, which requires us to be meek. I told you at the beginning what he's asking us to do here is impossible in and of ourselves. But with, this, with the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and submitting to him, we can live this way. We are called by the Lord to be meek, to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. How many times have I failed there? <laughs> Every day. And again, in Colossians, we are exhorted to be clothed with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience that's what we're called how we're called to live it's it's otherworldly it's supernatural and cannot be done in our own strength but through him we can the world teaches us that to get ahead in this life we need to be anything but meek the ones who will inherit the earth are not those who are the greatest but those who are the least the ones who inherit the earth are not those who are being who are being served But those who are servants, the Lord says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So I want to sing this next song as a prayer of my heart. And I hope as a prayer of your heart, um, make me a servant. we will ask David and Sharon to sing. songs like that. They're simple, few words, repetitive, and make you think about them all week long. Finally, the last uh, beatitude for this morning is found in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Have you ever heard of the saying, um, be careful what you wish for, because you're liable to get it. It's kind of a cliche that if you wish hard enough for something that you're likely to get it, good or bad. You remember the fabled story of Midas who wished that everything he touched would turn to gold. And he got his wish and it became a curse to him. Verse six is the wish for a good thing. In fact, it's more than a wish. It's described as a hunger and a thirst. And what is it that is being pursued? Righteousness. And the Lord promises us that if that is our wish, if that is our hunger, if that is our thirst, righteousness will surely be given to us. And that righteousness will never be a snare to us. In our pursuit of happiness that is being blessed by God, this hunger and thirst for righteousness is to pursue the things that are true of God. If we are to be more like Christ, then we need to be more righteous. And He has made us righteous and perfect as far as our standing or our position is concerned. The moment we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins were forgiven. God declared us justified. That means God himself is saying to us, you are now righteous. And that is true as far as our position in Christ is concerned. And we've often said our our position in Christ is lofty, it's high, and it's real. But our practice is somewhere down here. And as we continue to live our lives, we will never reach that perfect state until we arrive in heaven and we see Jesus as he is. But while we wait, our practice is to more and more conform to our position in Christ. Righteousness, hungering and thirsting and pursuing the things of God. God is concerned that we must pursue the practical righteousness of living as righteous people. Remember that woman in John chapter 4, that thirsty woman? And she thought that her greatest need was H2O. She said, Lord, I just, water, just give me water. When she really needed the forgiveness and the righteousness of God, the very God who was sitting next to her, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Righteousness comes at salvation and is given fully and freely to all who believe. That's our position. But, as, but we long, the hungry and the thirsting is, is the longing that we have deep within ourselves to be more like that day by day. In our practice. It's that righteousness that makes up our hunger, our thirst, our strong desire, our passion, our purpose. It's the determined pursuit of what is pleasing to God. It's the desire to embrace that which is good, to shun that which is evil. It's the deep-seated longing for the things of God. It is to live for Christ. So I ask myself, and I ask you, is it your heart's desire do you have that longing and that thirst to be righteous, to be different, to be like Christ? Krista and I just took a 28 day road trip and um, we drove for 7,500 miles. We were up in the, some of the highest mountains in the continental USA and in uh, some deserts and it was hot. I will say that, in places. In places, the temperature exceeded 100 degrees. And um, the desert sands, I was parched with thirst on some days. Uh, The hot sun, the dry wind. And I needed, I knew I needed, my body longed for it. That cool, refreshing water. Well, I was very fortunate that we had a cooler in the car and we had it filled with ice every morning and cold water in there and I stopped the car get out in the hot sun run to the back get some water and come back and I was fine but this longing this thirst this uh, was was very real and I noticed that um, and it's kind of a picture of life we live in a spiritual desert And we need to take in that cool and refreshing drink of righteousness each day. And God will supply that need to us. Near the end of the day, in um, many of the places where we were, um, I I noticed that forest animals, deer and antelope and bison, would come out from their hiding uh, near the end of the day. And they would gravitate towards the lake or gravitate towards the stream Um, nearby. And they, too, had a longing for a deep, satisfying drink. And it led them out of security, shall we say, to um, the waters. And that, too, is a picture the Scripture uses to describe the insatiable thirst that we should have in pursuit of God, that it should be like that longing, that thirst um, that we have on a hot and dry day. Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he is both ready and willing to satisfy that thirst. If that's your thirst this morning, he will satisfy that thirst. And so we're going to end with a song. um, As the deer panteth for the water, so my my soul longeth after thee. And after um, we sing this, I'll just close in prayer and the meeting will be over. enjoyed that today? A little different. Let's just pray. Lord, we come to you and we seek the blessings, the blessedness that you offer to us, the happiness that is deep-seated. It is felt in a way that superficial happiness is not. And we ask, Lord, that you might uh, do a work in us that we might be more and more like the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the trials that you bring our way that take away the the junk, take away the dross, take away the stuff in our life that does not really represent the Lord Jesus in any way. And I pray you would continue the work that you've started in us and complete it in us. Lord, we look forward to that day when all of this dress rehearsal will be over and we will see you face to face. And we say even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.